Uh, well, like Matt said, my name is Bert. Uh, I have a wife that a lot of you guys know, Sherry. We have two little boys. Uh, they're doing well. Everyone's happy, healthy. And I just even want to piggyback off Matt was saying, whether you know me or not, you guys have played a really integral role in, in supporting us and, and helping Anthem Ventura. And so I just want to say thank you, even before we dive into the text today. You guys have been praying for us. We relish those prayers. Thank you so much. Uh, you guys, without even knowing it, have been financially supporting us. You guys have been really, even just by being here and existing, have helped pave the way for churches like ours to move forward. And so we're so, so grateful uh, to you guys. And I'm really excited to be in the text with you today. It's been a little while, huh? I don't know a lot of you guys in here. (laughs) All right. Well, my name is Bert. I hope to meet you guys. Um, If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. And as you guys are turning to Matthew chapter 11, I want to do something that we've been doing uh, in Ventura quite a bit. Uh, This is especially helpful if you're new to Anthem or if you haven't been tracking along with our Matthew teaching. I just want to catch you up to where we're at in the story. Is that okay? It'll be really quick. And even for those of you who've been tracking with us, it's helpful review. So in these first couple of chapters of Matthew, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Matthew's been doing something really specific and really intentional. He's been crafting his account of the life of Jesus in a special way because he has a really unique audience. Do you guys know who Matthew's primarily writing to? Yeah, Jewish people, primarily. Those are the people, at least in the the first wave, that would hear about these stories or read this letter. And so these first couple of chapters are all about connecting Jesus to the Old Testament, seeing how he's the new Abraham, he's the new Moses, he's the new David, and, and seeing how he fulfills all these different prophetic promises that God had made with the people of Israel. And to you and I, stuff like a, a genealogy or a birth narrative or baptism may not seem super exciting or a compelling way to start off this account, but to Matthew's original audience, they would have been floored by this. They would have been reading those first 17, 18 verses in Matthew chapter 1 and be like, oh wow, there's Abraham. Wow, there's David. Oh my goodness. You and I are like, oh man, more names. But the people reading this for the first time would have been so compelled. This would have ticked off a lot of things that they've been hoping for and waiting for for hundreds and thousands of years. So this is really important, what Matthew is doing here. The reason he's doing that is he's laying the foundation to say, this is the long-awaited, foretold, promised Messiah King that you've been waiting for for hundreds of years. Because of that, he has authority to teach in a new way, and he has authority to bring in the kingdom of God. Then in chapter 4, we see Jesus start his ministry by uh, wandering out in the desert and being tempted by Satan, by calling some disciples to himself. And in chapter 5, we have his first and largest block of teaching. And this is all about helping people understand what the kingdom of God is all about. And so it's doing two primary things because Jesus has two primary groups of people he's talking to. Do you guys know those primary groups of people? The Sermon on the Mount, who's he talking to? I hear whispers, and one of those whispers is right. Just say it louder. One of them is disciples, and then the other group of people is, does anyone know? The crowd. Kind of ambiguous, just the crowd, right? So he's talking to his disciples, and he's talking to the crowd at large, which means his Sermon on the Mount is doing two things. For his disciples, it's this manifesto of life in the kingdom. It's putting a flag in the ground. It's drawing a land in the sign. It's, it's this mission statement to say, this is what it's like to be in the kingdom of God, to follow after me. 
But because he's also talking to a crowd of people, it's an ongoing invitation to anyone and everyone to join in this way of life. So it's both clarifying what the kingdom of God is all about, and it's this continual invi- uh, invitation into joining him in this life. And so at the very end of his first and biggest block of teaching, Jesus goes on a miracles rampage, right? In chapters 8 and 9, it's just story after story of Jesus healing people, casting out demons, calming a storm, and all throughout these stories of Jesus demonstrating the authority of the kingdom of God, he's inviting people in, and he's helping people understand in a greater way what it means to follow him, what discipleship actually is. And at the end of that section, Jesus trains his disciples to go out on the exact same mission he's been on this entire time. So chapter 10 is all about. That's where we've been the last couple of weeks or so. Jesus equipping the 12 to go out to teach, preach, heal, cast out demons. And so where we're at in the story right now is Matthew's collected a bunch of stories describing how people have responded to Jesus. And we'll see like we did last week, like with John the Baptist and his disciples, they're sort of neutral and there's sort of this questioning like, are you really the Messiah? I want to see. And then there's some people who see Jesus or are healed by him and respond positively saying, yes, he is the Messiah. And there's some people like the Pharisees and the religious leaders who are very much against him. And so in chapters kind of 11, 12, and 13, Matthew's collecting all these stories of how people are responding to the person, message, and ministry of Jesus. And what we'll find is that his kingdom will not stop for opposition. And in fact, it just gets greater and bigger and just keeps going and going and going. And this is where we start to see some of the first real opposition to Jesus's ministry. And we find that his message continues on. And the part of the story we're in right now in Matthew chapter 11 is Jesus is again teaching and, and preaching in the areas uh, around Galilee. He sent off the, the 12. They're doing their thing. They're teaching and preaching in the cities. He's back on that same mission again, and he's on his mission in Galilee. And after Jesus's conversation with John the Baptist's disciples, which was last week, so if you missed last week, go watch the video. In his conversation there, Jesus kind of veers into this really interesting territory. He, he stops talking to John the Baptist's disciples, and he has a harsh message for the towns and the cities that he's in right now. And what we're going to see is that Jesus tends to focus his harshest critiques, his harshest concerns, and sometimes his harshest rebukes for those that, that know him best or those that should already have enough to respond to Jesus. That's where we're at in the story. So turn with me to Matthew 11. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 20. We're going to go to verse 24. Okay, then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Why? It's not a trick question. (laughs) Why? Because they didn't repent. There you go. Okay, I know it's 9 a.m., but you guys got to get the jitters out. Okay, verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? 
you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Okay, nice happy text this morning. <laughs> would, would you guys take a moment and just pray with me? Father, we, we love you so much. We desperately need your grace, your mercy, your spirit's help in understanding uh, what this means and has for us. Father, would you help me teach and preach in a way that is, is faithful and honoring to, to what the text has? And, and Father, would you even remind me in this moment that you love these people more than I ever could? And so what do you want to say to this church? Father, would you, would you help us be good listeners of what you're trying to teach us today? And not just listeners, would you help us be good obeyers? We desperately do not want to just accumulate head knowledge. God, would you change our lives? No matter where we're at, in our journey with you, God, would we leave this place transformed and changed from one glory to another because we've encountered you. God, we believe you speak to us when we worship and we praise you. We believe you speak, we, you believe we speak to us when we come to your text and seek. Seek you. Seek what you have to say. And so, Father, would you teach us? Would you help us understand? Amen. Amen, amen. Okay. So for those of you guys who don't know me, um, there are, there are, when you see people up here like this, there are teachers that, that preach, and then there are preachers that teach. And I think uh, Matt and even, even Josh, your, your guys' teachers here, they, they are preachers, and then they have this phenomenal gift of, of teaching that comes uh, under that. And I think what I've seen in my life is I'm a teacher that also happens to preach, and so there will be moments of this that are a little, like, classroom-esque, but, but hang on with me, okay? And so what we're going to do, just so you guys know where we're headed, is we're going to take the first little portion, just help understand the context, what's happening here, help understand what Jesus is saying to these towns, and then we're going to take a, a portion at the end and kind of bring this home for us. Is that okay? Can we do that? Okay, cool. So in these, a couple of verses here, verses 20 through 24, there are two really important things that I want you and I to see really clearly. And the first is privilege, the privilege that these three cities had in their access and opportunity, the gospel. And the second is the responsibility that comes with that kind of access and opportunity that are very evident here. And so in the first verse, we find out that Jesus is calling out entire communities for, for not responding to him and not repenting, right? He's done all these miraculous works in these cities, and they are not responding to the message of God. He's done a ton of miracles, but they are still living in their current ways. They hadn't repented and turned to God. And so in verse 21 and 22, he starts calling out some specific cities. And I'm just like, if I were reading this letter, and I don't know, maybe if it was today, if, if Jesus were saying, woe to you, Ventura, woe to you, Thousand Oaks. I'm like, oh, yikes, this is not good. And this is not good. Like, the woes that Jesus is presenting to him here, this is rough. Okay, let's look at this. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
And what's unique about these communities that Jesus is dishing out woes to is, is this is where Jesus had spent probably the most time in his ministry. This kind of cities right here, uh, just north of Galilee. This is where a lot of Jesus' ministry had been centered. They were his friends. They were his neighbors. They were the people he'd spent a lot of time with. They were the people that he knew the best, and they probably knew him the best. And he's around these cities where most of his miracles and a lot of his teachings had been done, and they are not repenting and turning to God. So just for a bit of context, I want to show you guys a map. You can go and put that map up. Uh, just so you can understand where things are happening. So a lot of what we've seen in Matthew so far, see the Sea of Galilee? It's all hanging around Capernaum in those cities right there. He takes one little boat ride to Gadara, freaks the town out, and then he travels back. And he's just kind of hanging around the north of Sea of Galilee yet. He hasn't started it on Jerusalem. He's kind of staying in this one little area. And so the towns Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum are all really close to each other. Uh, there's some unique things about this town. In Bethsaida, we find that that's where Philip, Andrew, and Peter, the disciples, are from. Uh, and we also see that Jesus gave sight to a blind man up there, and that's where the feeding of the 5,000 happened. So pretty significant stuff has happened in this town. And, and Capernaum is the home base for, for Jesus' mission and ministry. It's kind of his adopted hometown. And Jesus takes these cities to the woodshed a little bit because he puts them in front of this backdrop, what would have been the epitome of sinful cities. And so the, the cities he uses to compare them to are, are Tyre and Sidon. And so Tyre is right at the top right there on the Mediterranean coast. Sidon is right above. So these were actual cities that existed in Jesus' time, but they were also kind of an archetype or a metaphor for rebellion to God. So they were frequently called out in the Old Testament for their Baal worship, for their materialistic desires, for their kind of just pursuit of worldly passions. And they were the epitome of what it meant to, to not follow God. Right? And so if you had God's people kind of wandering around, doing their best to, to display, maybe not doing their best, but at some times displaying God and his glory to the rest of the nations, you had towns like Tyre and Sidon who were saying, no thanks, we're going to stick with our idol worship, we're going to stick with accumulating gold and chariots and horses and everything, and, and that's where we're going to put all of our eggs in that basket. And so Jesus is calling out these specific towns, but he's also using them as kind of just showing the epitome of, of humanity's sinfulness. And he compares these two together, and he said, it would be better for these ancient, epic towns that epitomize sinfulness. It would have been better for them. They would have received my message. They would have repented. But you have not repented. These towns that Jesus calls out had access to Jesus, unprecedented access to Jesus. They had opportunity. They had seen the best of the best of Jesus. I mean, these were the towns where it feels like every other person had been healed by Jesus. I mean, the book of John tells us that the, the Gospels don't even cover a fraction of all that Jesus did. And so he's very active. He's taught a ton and these people who have a front row seat are saying, eh, <laughs> no thanks, I'm good. These people who would have the most reason to respond to Jesus and his message of the kingdom of God say, no thanks. He singles out Capernaum his hometown, his, his adopted city. And if there were one city 
that might have it all together or that might have like been most primed to receive the gospel, it would have been Capernaum. Look what Jesus says to them in verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Nope. (laughs) You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, or we can read Sodom and Gomorrah, that should paint a pretty grim picture for you, right? You guys remember some of these stories from Sunday school? Yeah, you do. Okay, so if it had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for you. So this would have been like the first century Palestinian version of like an epic burn, right? This was like, these were not nice things that Jesus was saying. These were not politically correct things. They were not polite things. They may not even seem kind, but he has this sharp message for those that ought to know better, who have ought to respond to God already and are continuing to choose to live in their sinful ways. And so to help paint a picture for for why Jesus' rebuke is so sharp, I want us to see what they have seen, what they've been witness to, the kind of privilege and access and opportunity to the gospel that they've had. And so these people in these cities that Jesus is referencing, they have been, uh, they've known and been seen and been a part of God's story from the beginning. A lot of Jewish towns, they've had this ongoing running story with God from the very beginning. They've had prophets from Moses all the way to John the Baptist, directing them back to the story of God, preparing them for this Messiah. They've had this incredible legacy of being God's people, right? We know God gives them identity and purpose and responsibility. I will be your God. You will be my people. You'll be a kingdom of priests. You'll be a holy nation. You will show the rest of the world what it's like to love, pursue, and follow my way of living. They've had this legacy of being God's chosen people. And then they've seen this new rabbi filled with the Spirit, teaching and preaching and casting out demons and healing people and quelling storms. These guys are ready. They've seen everything that you could possibly see. And they're still not responding. Their story to them is not enough to respond to Jesus. Everything they've seen God do is not enough. They've rejected Jesus, and so on them are pronounced these woes, and these woes are serious. We'll see more woes as, as the book of Matthew continues. But he says their judgment will be worse than the sinful nations around you. Jesus' rebuke is specifically to those that ought to know better, to those who've had the greatest access to him, those who've had the greatest opportunity to bear witness to all Jesus has done. And I think for us today, this has tremendous weight because I think if we reflect on on just our time and place in 2017 in, in Southern California, you and I have tremendous access to the gospel. Praise God. We are blessed in every sense. We have incredible opportunity to live the way of Jesus. 
we have an incredible privilege of being 2,000 years into this Jesus story, seeing all he's done throughout the world, throughout all time. And for some of us, it's not enough. I think that has tremendous weight for us. We live in a time and place where we can meet freely on a Sunday morning, enjoy each other, worship our King, learn from the scriptures. We live in a time and a place where I'm willing to bet you have at least more than two Bibles in your house. Unprecedented in human history. We have tremendous access and opportunity in the gospel. How often do we miss it? I think there's a lot of me that has a lot of compassion for these towns that Jesus is calling out because I find myself in them so much. I mean, I, like Matt, ha- have grown up in a, I tell people I was born on a church pew, literally, like at different points, both my parents worked for churches and got a little messy. Um, kidding. Uh, okay, so I, I, I had this long legacy of history. I've had this long legacy of seeing how God has provided for me, cared for me. I can't tell you how many thousands of prayers I've seen answered in my life, and I still miss it sometimes. And I still think, I got this one, God. I don't really need you that much. Don't interfere too much with my life. I like the control that I have. I think there's loads for us in this text today. And for some, it may feel like a stark warning, and and maybe that is what the Holy Spirit is brewing in you. But I think for others, there's also an encouragement in this text. Because what we see, what Jesus is is looking for, he's not looking for spiritual achievement. He's not looking for number of years in seminary. He's not looking for how many people you personally converted to Christianity or anything like that. What he is looking for, the basis of what he's looking for is repentance, which says, I don't have it all together. Which says, on my own, I can't do this which says, on my own, on my own merit is not enough to save me. When we've been so exposed to the story of God, in his kindness, it leads us to repentance. We've seen his overwhelming grace and mercy throughout all time and history, and you and I are primed, just like Capernaum, to respond to Jesus. And we find what happens when we don't respond with Capernaum. He compares them to Sodom, which is like, I don't even know what to compare it to. I don't know if we have a modern day version of what Sodom and Gomorrah would have been, but this was just the worst of the worst, right? On every single level, this was a culture and a community of people that have rejected everything that God is about. And he says, it'll be better for them. If those of you who know my story and have heard my message do not respond, it'll be better for them. Uh, there's this uh, commentator, theologian, he writes a Matthew commentary. He had this really great quote I want to share with you guys. Matthew Henry says, Christ's miracles here were daily bread. Imagine that kind of exposure to Jesus living in Capernaum. 
And therefore, as the manna of old were despised and called light bread, many a sweet and comfortable lecture of grace Jesus had read them to little purpose. And therefore, he reads them a dreadful lecture of wrath. Those who will not hear the former shall be made to feel the latter. The main point of these these couple of verses is that Jesus reserved the harshest critiques and condemnations for people that knew him, that knew his ministry, that have been front row witnesses to everything Jesus has done and still say, I think I can do this better. I don't need to repent. I don't need to turn to God. I don't need to change from my ways. I can still do this better myself. There's a privilege to witnessing Jesus' miraculous ministry and teaching. And it should have moved the people of these very religious towns to put their faith and trust in God and repent and turn from their ways and pursue the way of the kingdom of God. And because of that kind of access and exposure to not only Jesus, but to the story of God, Jesus holds high this responsibility to respond. I think one thing that's important to point out about this text is this is not new. It's not new for you and I, certainly, because I know as I was thinking through these couple of verses, I was recounting the many moments in my life where I've seen God work and I still, like, don't turn from my ways. The many answered prayer, and I still find myself looking to me to fix things. This is not new for the people of God either. Uh, as a church in Ventura, we're reading through the Bible together in a year, um, and we just uh, a little while ago finished Exodus. We're in Numbers, um, and uh, if you guys are familiar with the story of God, you know this is the story of God's people at the very beginning, right? So in Genesis, God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to the nations, and your sons and daughters are going to be more than the stars and the heavens and all of that, and then they wind up in Egypt, and they, they're in slavery for like 400 some odd years, and so these people become disenfranchised, oppressed, marginalized, And God hears the cries of the oppressed and redeems them. And so this is the beginning of this rolling story about how God is actively walking with his people coming out of Egypt. And so look at Exodus 14 here. Look at these last couple of verses here. Uh, Let's see, let's go to verse 30. Exodus 14, 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Okay, Exodus 15, what happens? How do they respond? They see the mighty works of the Lord, and in Exodus 15, verse 1, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, first recorded worship song in the Bible. This epic song about how God has redeemed and saved them. It's an entire chapter. It's beautiful. And what happens in chapter 16? Look at verse 1. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, so not that much long afterwards. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. 
And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. You have brought us into this wilderness to kill us, whole assembly with hunger. Now look from Exodus, the end of chapter 14. Look at Exodus chapter 15. Look at the beginning of Exodus chapter 16. How common is that pattern in your and I's life? God, save me. This thing, my, this thing is happening in my marriage. I don't know what to do. I need you to intervene. Nothing else has worked. Save me. Save our marriage. Save this. God intervenes gracefully. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lord. Praise you. And the next day, something happens. Oh, God, would you just left me there? You're laughing nervously because you can think of moments in your life when this has happened. (laughs) Guys, this happens so often in my life. God, please, I need you to come through. Please, please. He comes through. Praise you, God, for coming through. Thank you. Something new happens. God, why have you forsaken me? What is this? We are such forgetful people. I think these warnings, these woes are incredibly relatable. You and I have had tremendous access and opportunity. We've had the privilege firsthand of seeing God work. And whenever someone encounters Jesus, there is a response demanded. I firmly believe that you and I, we cannot encounter Jesus and remain unchanged. We can either respond positively and repent, worship, praise, whatever, or we could respond negatively and reject and say, no, I'm not going to turn to you. I'm going to keep living the way I want to live. As Jesus is encountering people in the book of Matthew, he's teaching, he's healing, he's casting out demons. It forces a response from people. There's this responsibility to respond that comes with that kind of access to and revelation of Jesus. And here in this text, the responsibility is repentance. In other places, in other scriptures, there's different responsibilities that happen when you come into contact with God and he changes you, and that's fine. But in these couple of verses, Jesus very clearly says, when you have seen me, when you have understood all that I have done for you, the proper response is repentance. The Bible talks a lot about repentance, and one of the things that's, that's common about this word and, and the story of repentance is it's not a one-time thing. So for, for, for someone, it is like the entry into his kingdom to recognize that I cannot save myself, and, and by grace through faith, I'm, I'm walking in this story with Jesus. But what we find throughout the Bible is that repentance for the Christian is a way of life. It is a regular rhythm of grace for us. Notice what Jesus is calling out in these couple of verses. He did not say because they didn't believe that Jesus was this teacher sent by God that they are finding their woes. It's because they didn't, what? Repent which tells us this is not a theological problem these people are having. This is not an intellectual problem. This is a life change problem. This is a being a hearer, not a doer problem. 
out of anyone in the world throughout all time, these people should have understood Jesus, should have understood the weight of the kingdom. And they might have. We don't know. There's not a whole lot of background for us. They might have theologically got there. They might have said, wow, this rabbi is really on top of it. He's going to the top of shul. This, is, this guy's awesome. Intellectually, understanding that Jesus was a very special rabbi, maybe even a prophet, it's not a hard jump for these guys. The jump would have been repenting, would have been recognizing Jesus as not only a teacher and a prophet, but the Son of God, the Messiah King sent to bring about this new kingdom of God where the old ways are not going to cut it anymore. And so we have to repent and turn to God and say, what are you doing? I want in. Repentance says, I'm not the best at running my own life. It involves us understanding our state as sinners, trusting in Jesus' redemption. It's definitely a, a heartfelt sorrow for sin, but it's more than that. It's not just admitting that you're sinful. It is an intentional turning to a different way of life. I think you and I have probably mastered some degree confession. Like saying, I'm, I messed up. I screwed up. I'm not enough. Okay, I got it. I think the area in which we have a little bit less mastery is actually turning and changing. And the, I don't know, the glorious comfort or discouragement, I don't know, I hope it's comfort, is that this is a process that happens until we die. This is never-ending, this life of growing in Christ, this life of constantly putting in check our sinful natures and our tendency to do our own thing. This doesn't stop until we die. We're continually checking our heart motives, and we're continually saying, God, what are you trying to lead me into right now? Jesus calls us to this life. It says, you've seen my mighty works. You've heard my message. You know the story of God. The proper response is to repent and keep on repenting. So the question for you and I is we have heard the good news. We've heard the good news. Whether, you've been, whether this is your first day to Anthem, you're not even a believer or whatever, whether you've been tracking with Jesus for a long time. As of right now, you've heard the good news that we were all sinners. And because of God's lavish grace and mercy, he sent his son Jesus to redeem you from your sins and to bring you into the fullest life now and to prepare you for life with him in all eternity. That's the good news. How do we respond to it? How do we respond? I think uh, I want to help a little bit in, in clarifying that. I th- if you're not a Christian in this room, if you don't believe in, in Jesus and, and someone dragged you here, first of all, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Um, and for you, what this life looks like is repenting. It's saying, I'm not the best at running my own life. I want to trust Jesus. 
It's a confession that you need a Savior to rescue you from yourself, from the bondage of sin to bring life to its full now and to experience life eternal with Jesus. Jesus clearly says repentance is a crucial part to joining up with his kingdom. For the Christian, for those of you guys in this room that are Christians who are walking with Jesus, this is a call to a life of continual repentance. Recognizing that God has crafted for you a life for a reason and a purpose, and he knows it best. He knows it better than you. It's repentance is on a regular basis saying, God, help me see where I'm missing it. Show me your better way for my life. And I want to follow that. I want to obey. Jesus was and is offering a chance to embrace a very different kind of kingdom than the people in first century Palestine were expecting and and often a very different kind of kingdom than you and I expect when we think of Jesus. They found any excuse to dismantle his kingdom. We see the Pharisees saying he's hanging out with the wrong people, he's partying too much, he's demon-possessed. I think for us, the question we have to ask ourselves is what keeps us? What excuses do we come up with? What reasons do we provide to avoid living the way of Jesus? All right, so maybe you're on board, like, okay, we've heard the good news. We respond with repentance, continual repentance. Okay, sounds good, but I don't want to leave it up there in that, in that headspace. For you and I, what reasons and excuses do we provide to avoid living the way of Jesus? So we don't have time for it, a busy schedule, work is demanding, that'll alienate me and my family, whatever. What excuses do we come up with for avoiding the way of Jesus? I think both for, this is a question for the Christian in the room and, and those of you who have not yet said, I want to trust Jesus. What are the excuses and the reasons that we provide? Jesus tells them that knowing him is enough. Knowing God's story is enough. We have everything we need right now to respond to Jesus. There's no extra class you need, no extra Sundays you need before you can, no like right moment when the worship hits that bridge and it's just like, oh, so good. You have everything you need right now to respond to Jesus. Right now. And so we're gonna make some space for that to happen. We're going to make some space for the the Holy Spirit to work in in our lives. So the team's going to come up and and lead us through some uh, response. And and during that response, you guys know the drill. If you're new to Anthem, uh, we have communion over here at any point. In the next few songs, you can receive communion. Uh, If you would like prayer for any reason or specifically because something this morning has pinged your heart a little bit, we're going to have some people on either side of the stage who would love to pray with you. Uh, We're going to sing together and and kind of train our hearts to live the way we're called to live. We're going to sing these great words of truth that will transform our hearts. But Paul, in the book of Romans, says that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance, not, not really anything else. And the gospel reminds us of God's kindness because it reminds us of who he is, what he's done, who we are and how that changes us. And so to lead us into a response time, I just want to read a portion of Ephesians 2 over you and for you to remind you of the great and glorious gospel in which we've been saved. 
So would you guys stand with me as I read this over you guys and we prepare to respond to Jesus. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one may boast." For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. <sighs> Father, it's your gospel that reminds us of how generous and gracious and merciful and kind you've been to us. And it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Would we be a church that hears this word and responds to you? Would we be a church marked by daily, continual repentance that says, I'm not the best at running my own life. I've made some poor choices. God, I want you to be king of my life. I don't want to be a slave anymore to my sinfulness, to my pride, to my selfish desires. I want you to be king over my life. Father, as we take some moments to respond to this beautiful truth, would you change us? Would we not leave unchanged by you? Would we respond to what you've started and continued and sustained in our life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.